Hi guys and welcome to another edition of the Fight Side Podcast boxing podcast and we will get this one out there's been a few healing issues the first one had a few technical issues but it's it's out there if anyone wants to listen the second one i got sick so it didn't happen but this time this one will come out unfortunately there isn't this wild hype worthy result to talk about like we had last week but we've got a few things to do to chew but to chew on so let's get into it i'm going to start this time with the british card because there's a few things i want to talk about there and I can, and then I'll get onto the American cards later, and we can talk about that, the, those fights and that division in general because there's been a lot going on there at one three five, and there's a lot more coming. So we'll finish off with that and roll it, roll it into talking about next week, just a little bit. Now, when I say the British card, of course, I mean Anthony Yard and his rematch win over Lyndon Arthur, which not many of us predicted, me included. And I also want to talk a little bit about Hamza Shiraz and that ludicrous late blow on Bradley Skeet, the potential of a rematch. And, you know, where has Shiraz, who is one of my favourite prospects, need to go from here? But let's start with Yard, because fair's fair. I mean, none of, none, of us, none of us thought that Yard would get good enough coaching to improve enough to beat Lyndon Arthur, and evidently he did. He... He didn't even have to change a lot. I did say in my preview that uh, he has he does look like he's been working on things a little bit. That I can't base a prediction based on it, but that he does look like he's been working on his footwork a little bit, and he doesn't need to have improved it that much to to get into the fight. And that proved even more true than I I could have imagined. Because to be honest, I wouldn't call it a a beating, well I mean the end was a beating, I wouldn't call the whole fight a beating, but it was pretty one-sided, but Lyndon Arthur had the second round where he managed to stop Yard doing too much without doing anything, and other than that he was just <clears throat> trying not to get hit, and that comes down to, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, but you have to give credit to Tinde Ajayi, you know, anyone who follows me, who talking about boxing knows I've been very critical of him as has pretty much everyone else involved in the boxing sphere in any capacity whatsoever and I mean let's be honest he's still he's always going to be an ass. but he got his ego out of the way and he got the help Yard needed it looks like he got James Cook in Yard has clearly been working on moving his feet while punching moving more smoothly getting inside and then getting the shots off quickly like I say, it didn't need a huge improvement to affect a huge improvement. I mean, like I don't want to overstate it. I can't say Yard is proven proven world level yet. We'll get we'll get to that next year, hopefully. But um, but he went from a pretty poor performance. Uh, well, it was close on the cards, and you know, it wasn't completely one sided humiliation last year. But he didn't look, he didn't get his game off at all, and. This year it was he had absolutely no trouble and it was very one sided. He got himself very easily into those positions that he needs to prove to to show what people have been high on. Because I've been high on Yard for a long time. I've found him very frustrating. And I know I'm not the only one. He's clearly very gifted. He hasn't been boxing for all that long. And there was a time early in his career when he looked he looked to have developed really fast and then he seemed to stall both in both in how his career was being managed and how he was developing as a fighter. And, I mean, we'll see how it goes with the management and we'll see how this sticks. But so far, he looks to have taken the right steps technically to bring forward the strengths that he always has had, which for me has been, I mean, firstly, his speed and his power. People talk about his power, but for me, his hand speed has always been his killer app, so to speak. 
Now, he, he, did, he punches hard, but it's not the hardest puncher in the division. <clears throat> there isn't anyone who punches as hard as he does who can throw the hands as fast as he does. And the thing is, for me, I'm not sure if everyone agrees on this, but his punch picking is very good. Look at the combination that finished it. <clears throat> through multiple hard shots, but it wasn't just a mindless barrage. He's that he had Lyndon Arthur on the ropes and he's pausing in between each shot, figuring out where he needs to throw it, throwing it to the open space that Arthur left reacting to the last one. And he's doing all that. Even though he's pausing between each shot, it's still landing very, very quickly. And he generates power. He generates power even when he's out of shape, which is nice. That's another thing I've always thought. But this time he was in shape. Well, like he was in close, but his feet weren't square. He, he most of the time, and there was one point when his feet did get square, but he adjusted, so he had the awareness of it, and all of that. Like you see, some very good boxers who aren't that level, and so you see Anthony Yard after you know one or two training camps with someone other than Tunde Ajayi helping, because Tunde was still there, but they had Mr. James Cook in to help. He, had, he saw one one summer of training. And he's suddenly bringing all these things into bear. So he's clearly at least a little bit teachable. And like I say, he I mean, he's not hes not one of these super late starters at boxing, but he didn't start super early either. He, he went, first went to a gym at 18, I believe. Um, he didn't turn pro. He turned pro when he was 24 after having 12 amateur fights, it's said, which isn't, you know, not a lot. And he advanced to a sort of British level very quickly. <clears throat> and then after that, we saw what we saw for the last few years. But um, he's always had that talent. Like you watch his early fights, he's always had that talent. You know, he wasn't just relying on being really fast and hitting really hard. He was looking for those, those openings and finding them. And then as the position got better, he just wasn't able to to get himself into the positions he needed. And so I was just really glad to see him do the things that he needed to be doing, that he's always needed to be doing to get himself into 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 those closer spaces against opponents that don't want him to be there. And, I mean, doing it against Lyndon Arthur is going to be a very different prospect to doing it against Dimitri Bivol or anyone, well, you know, anyone at world level. His prospective next fight is a winner of Callum Johnson versus Joe Smith Jr., so he's not going to have any trouble finding his way in there, and it's whether he can defend, which I think he can. That's another thing that I think he's um, underrated for. He's not that hittable at close range, and that was a thing that... <clears throat> Arthur was finding difficult. He's uh, at range, and this is still true, and it's something he'll be working on a bit more. Well, it was better this fight than it was before, but obviously it wasn't the focus of what he had been doing over the summer. Um, but when you're, when he's in close, Anthony Yard is pretty hard to hit, um, considering how much he's throwing. And so I'll be very interested to see how he fights, presuming that fight comes together, the winner of Johnson versus Smith. But anyway, the point here is, so some, some of you probably already knew this, I'm outing myself here as an Anthony Yard fan. I was generally so happy to see him improve. Um, you know, you still have to hang on to some scepticism of how it's going to go in the future, but for now you have to say hats off to him, hats off to Tunde, hats off to Tunde, and hats off to James Cook, the man they brought in, who, um, by Tunde's own, in Tunde's own words, they were a ship without a rudder, and he's clearly steering them in something of the right direction, and... I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I'm excited to see what happens from here, as long as they get the right fights. Now, on to the next one, because there's another fighter that I've been pretty hyped about, pretty excited by. It was Hamza Shiraz, and he was facing 
It was an interesting fight because his opponent, Radiski, and if you're not a follower of British boxing or if you're new to boxing, you might not be too aware of him because he hadn't fought a serious fight for three years. And in 2018, he lost two high-level fights and looked shot as hell at welterweight. And now he's moved, he came back, moved up to, to 154, and on paper he was going to be by some distance the best fighter that Hamza had faced. But we really had no clue of what his health was like, what his skills were going to be like moving up in weight, because... I mean, he's a big, he's a big old guy, but he's a lot smaller than Shiraz, and uh, his his defense, as we did see it, his defense is very predicated on reflexes and not being there, and you know he's not much for the high guard, and it just seemed like that Shiraz was going to be too fast, too big, too accurate, and that just did not happen. It just didn't happen at all. Uh, I was very surprised by this one. I was very disappointed in Hamza Shiraz even before the controversial ending, which we'll get to. Um, it just wasn't a good performance by Shiraz, and it was a very good performance by Bradley Skeet, who was, apart from anything else, apparently proving that looking shot three years ago probably had a lot to do with the weight cut, because he is a big on boy for one for seven, and uh, is an average, you know, he's a pretty. Looking back now, it's quite surprising that he hadn't moved up sooner, but at the time, one for seven was a glamour division, even in domestic British boxing, it made sense, but. It's been out three years. Bradley Skeet comes back, thirty-four years of age, but age, but looks fresh as a daisy. Seven rounds of giving Shiraz an absolute boxing lesson, and it was one of those things where Shiraz <clears throat> highlighted the importance of throwaways and setups, and we'll get onto some of that later with the American fights in a very different way. But um, what Shiraz was doing was following, and he needs to cut the ring, but he was waiting for the perfect opening. And he wanted to land the perfect shot. And it just it wasn't happening. And against Bradley Skeet, it's just not going to because he is this kind of loose. He 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 jigs about. He's he's not, he's always a bit open to be hit, but he's never open to be hit clean. And you just have to throw really throw anything. You if you wait for the perfect shot, it's never going to come. And that's what was happening. Like Shiraz was sort of marching forward, occasionally throwing out a jab, getting peppered with shots. And I mean, it was a bit. It was very disappointing by him. It was very good by Ski. It was a very good learning fight. And then at the end of round seven, going into round eight, Shiraz realised what kind of what he needed to do, which is essentially just go fuck it. And instead of throwing every shot, trying to land the peach perfect punch, he just started throwing random shit basically. You know, as he goes forward, it's going to have to be more planned about his random shit. But it was a decent adjustment, and it was. You know, something to be pleased about as a as a fat, you know, wanting him to do well as a prospect. And he started catching Skeet, and in round eight, he caught him. He knocked him down, perfectly good knockdown. And Skeet's on the floor, and Shiraz hits him. I think it was three times. It's two or three times. It's a little bit hard to see on the replays how many of them landed. He definitely hit him twice. Could have been three. The third one was an absolutely ludicrous late hook that sent Skeet crashing. And... The referee, and this was a terrible referee, and he should have been disqualified immediately. Like, uh, I'm a fan of Shiraz, but there's, there's absolutely no way Skeet was going to recover from that shot. Like, he, he got up, he wanted to continue, fair play, fair play. The referee needed to save him from himself. There's a pretty good chance that he hadn't known what had happened. Like, we've seen that before. Fart has been knocked down. He thinks he's been knocked out because he hasn't registered that, you know. It's the thing with concussion. You don't remember the thing that concussed you. And, um... So the referee needed to be more aware of that. He needed to stop the fight and disqualify Shiraz. And instead he took one point. And there was another knockdown at the end of the round. 
the count went over over the end uh, after the bell. So Skeet got you know a whole minute to recover. Came out in the ninth round and it ended pretty quickly. And it just it left a sour taste. And I'm Shiraz to his credit. Shiraz has come out and said um, that he'll give Skeet the rematch. He says he didn't mean to do it. I'm I don't think it was malicious. I don't think he was going. Oh, I'm going to hurt this guy for beating me. I think he was frustrated. But even if he wasn't aware of Skeet's knee on the canvas, and that's hard to credit because it was right, it was right in front of him, and you can't fully see it from the ankles, but um, he might have been kneeling on Shiraz's foot. It's you know, it was very very obvious. But okay, so Shiraz has come out and apologised. He said like it, it, he did hit him late. He didn't mean to do it. He's going to give Skeet, uh, Skeet the rematch as soon as possible, which you know, fair play. Hopefully, the British Boxing Board of Control renders that a no contest because Skeet absolutely does not deserve to have that loss on his record and I'm sorry to say that Shiraz does not deserve to have that as a win on his record. It needs it's he should have a loss, but you know, no no contest is what we can do for now. And that needs to happen as soon as possible. The rematch hopefully happens and I mean, even after that I do hope I hope Shiraz can improve. I hope he can show what I know he's got, which is these this accurate flashy pressure game. He needs to bring in what he needs to bring in is some Corralling shots, some cutting off the ring movement because it just wasn't happening for him. I thought he was better than that, but he's never fought someone like Skeet before, so you know, one of those fights. So I hope he improves on that, and hopefully, we see that early in the new year. And yeah, this was an interesting, interesting weekend of fights in Britain, but I'm not sure there's too much more to say, so let's move on to the American fights and most specifically <coughs> the 135 pound division, which saw. Which has seen a lot of action lately and saw two fights last night, that last weekend, that are worth talking about. And the, f- the first of these was Devin Haney fighting Joseph Diaz Jr. on Saturday night. And the second was Javonta Davis fighting Isaac Cruz um, in a, what was technically a late replacement for Rolly Romero. But it wasn't that late, it was five weeks. So I wouldn't take too many excuses about a late count, a late change, but, you know, it, it was what it was. And um, I think both fights showed... It's a funny one to talk about because both fights showed clearly gifted fighters, clearly talented fighters, taking winning fights that they were expected to win, and but just somehow both fighters coming out of it not winning as comfortably as they should. I mean, that isn't even true of Haney. Let's talk about Haney first. Because... <clears throat> Well, he was first. With Haney, I mean, I can feel slightly smug about my predictions on this one, as I sometimes do, because it happened pretty much exactly as I thought it was going to. If you read my predictions piece up on the fight site, this is one I did get pretty much bang on, because what I said was Haney will have too much speed for for JJ Diaz, who he's, um, he's very foot slow, but once he gets inside, he's tidy, compact, hits with a re- reasonable pop and good accuracy. And what Devin Haney has is he had a very big speed advantage. He had a range advantage. I didn't mention that. He had a massive range advantage too. But once once he is inside, Devin Haney, he tends to make these little positional errors. They're not, you know, there's nothing huge that you can point to. And we'll get, I'll, I'll get to what he's I'll try to break down exactly what's going wrong in a second. But he makes these little errors of positioning that make him not just more hittable than it looks like he should be, but make the shots 
Nan Harder. It makes him look like he's got a bad chin, which not maybe he does, but so often chin is based on stance and not just on, you know, physique. So, uh, on physical qualities. So we'll, um, yeah, and that's pretty much exactly what happened is, um, Haney controlled most of the fight. He won fairly comfortably, but, uh, there are quite a few occasions when Jojo Diaz got in close, got drew him into pocket exchanges and um, landed shots that Haney clearly felt quite strongly. He didn't. He, he was never really on the edge of knocking him out. You know, Haney Haney wins. He moves on, but fighting a smaller, slower guy coming up in weight. You know, he's fought in the division before, but um. It's a little bit concerning when you think about Haney then taking on the other top fighters in the division. So let's um, let's try to break down. Let's try to get into a little bit exactly what it is that's going wrong. And I mean, I feel I don't want to shit on him too much because he's clearly a talented fighter. But what he's got is he knows everything that he should be doing. He knows. He has a big bag of tools. He fights on the inside and the outside. But there seems to be a disconnect between what his feet are doing and what his upper body and his hands are doing. Like They're not fully, completely lined up. And in my opinion, that's what cost him his power too. Because you'll see a, a lot of analysts will say that Haney cost himself power because he's, um, cause he's putting his punches because he's worried about sitting down. And to some extent that's true, but I don't think it's the whole story because you do see Haney really you know he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't being Anthony Yard in there he wasn't going Mike Tyson but I mean he he was chasing he was looking for hard hard shots to to hurt Diaz with he just wasn't finding them and I think for me that the problem is that the power doesn't fully come from the floor you wouldn't call them arm punches but they're not he's not driving all the way from the ground and I don't think it's because he's not trying to. I think it's just because he's there's something not quite lined up in his stance. And I think you can see that. And this is what I'm getting... This is really the heart of what I'm trying to get to here. You can see that when he's defending in the pocket as well. Because the thing about most boxing stances, all good boxing stances, even the really basic ones, is they're there to take off... To make the, your line of balance be defensible in as many directions as possible so that there's no one line where if you take a shot it's going along your direction of balance or across your direction of balance there's no there's no one line where it's going completely across your direction of balance and you're really easily shove really easy to push off balance and knock over that's true in all combat sports but it's very much more easy to be true in boxing because you don't you only have to worry about punches you don't have to worry about other things like in, in mma the typical mma starters are more vulnerable to exploiting these lines of balance because most fighters, all fighters, have to worry about other threats and that means that their stances are compromised when it comes to taking pure punching. There's something Conor McGregor takes advantage of, or used to, back when he was good, finding those angles across the line. And in boxing, most stances have in some way, there's a... Okay, I call it the line. The way I would put it is that the line of balance is twisted down the as it goes down the body. And it's, sometimes this isn't really obvious. Like some fighters are really squared up, like seem really square on. But even in you know, the obvious one is someone like Golovkin who looks fairly square on, but the 
where whichever direction you hit him from, he can, even if you land on him clean, he moves with the punch without, like, he's he's taking the force of the punch off with how he moves with it, with his body, with his feet. And uh, even on much lesser level, lower level boxers, even in really crude boxers, you'll see, for the most part, that they're in some way taking the sting off the punches, even when they're getting hit. They're taking the sting off the punches by moving with them along a line that they don't have to stagger. They're not immediately off balance when they move with the punch. And the thing with Devin Haney is there's something about his stance. It's some, there's something, it seems to be broken. This, this line that I talk about, that sort of, I'm being very arty-farty here. There's this line of balance that sort of twists as it goes out the body. And it seems to be broken somewhere along between Haney's shoulders and his lower legs. I don't know. There's something not in line and so when he takes a shot to the head he goes far further off balance than he should be taking those shots from a puncher like Jojo Diaz or even in the Linares fight like Linares can throw he can land pretty hard but um but there's something along about Haney's defense that leaves him open to being pushed further off balance and that makes it harder to take the shot and it's it's not as if he's being forced to do this like Jojo Diaz is not a roughhouse fighter in that sense. He's not pushing Haney out of line. It's just there. Like, it's there for him. If he looks for the shot, it's there to be had. And that makes it difficult. Uh, I'll get into this a little bit after I've talked about Shimonta Davis because I want to talk about both of these together. But it makes it a little bit difficult to talk about, to one think of how Haney's going to compete with the top, top fighters in this division, because there's all due respect to JJ Diaz. He's just come up from the division below. He had a title, a world title there. He's a good fighter, but he's not, he's never going to be pound for pound elite, which is what Haney is aiming to be, and which is what several of the fighters in this division that he's in now either already are or are aiming for. And that's something that Haney really has to, we really have to think about when thinking of his, well, let's, his management. Haney and his management have to really think about if he's really ready for that. Because the thing is, he's a kid, he's got loads of time to fix this, but he's been pushed into this elite, elite level. And it's, you know, as good as he clearly is, it's not quite clear that he's ready yet. And I'm going to come back to that, but first I'm going to talk about Javonta Davis, because his journey's been a bit different, obviously he's older, but he has some of the same... I mean, his issues are very different, and he has won world titles at multiple levels. It clearly would be a lie to say he's not ready you know if he's not if he's not really now he's never going to be he's never fought an elite fighter himself like a really elite fighter he had this fight against Isaac Cruz this one didn't go quite as I predicted because Cruz was more immediately aggressive than I expected you know everyone else predicted that so maybe maybe I should have but it did do some of what I was suggesting he would which was he was making tank full shots fall short with these big shots that he was throwing or he was taking the sting off the shots they weren't landing they were landing on the gloves and with that you know he was completely unfancied he's stepping up levels from where Isaac Cruz is stepping up levels from where he'd been before to fight Javonta Davis and you know again like JJ Diaz he was never in danger of winning but you know unlike JJ Diaz I mean again I don't want to be smug on this one because I didn't quite call it as, as I wanted but I did say Javonta Davis was probably going to have more success, more less success, more trouble 
then a lot of people were suggesting that he just blow through him. And it wasn't an unreasonable analysis. Like I said in my preview that a lot depends on Chris's intangibles that we just couldn't know about. But So it wasn't an unreasonable analysis to say that he's just not ready, not proven at this level, and he's going to get blown away. But why did he struggle? And, I mean, he broke his hand. And I have to give him credit. I did not expect him to deal with that kind of adversity the way he did. You know, if you'd told me before the fight, Javante Davis is going to uh, break his hand, I would probably have got that completely wrong and said, oh, he's going to melt. I, mean, I don't think he's got the technical tools or the mindset to fight his way through that. And then in that, I was wrong. And I would have been wrong. You know, it's a fair play to Javante Davis. So that for that, for fighting with one hand for so long. But what are the problems that Javante Davis has that made him struggle. They made him struggle with Leo Santa Cruz, who was, you know, he's taller than him, but he's was coming up in the weight and he's way past his best. And it made him struggle with Isaac Cruz, who has jumped multiple levels of competition to come into this fight at relatively late notice. I don't want to, you know, it's not too big a deal. It was five weeks notice. It's nearly a full camp. And yeah, okay. Javante Davis did not blow him away the way someone, you know, if you put... Vasily Lomachenko in that position. Honestly, even... Okay, I don't want to knock Cruz too much. We want to see more from him, more context, but you wouldn't expect, that, again, the top, top fighters in that division to find him a tricky opponent. So what goes wrong for Tank Davis? And for me, and this is something I've been beating the drum for on for ages and ages, and I don't want to sound repetitive, but I'm going to do it on this podcast, I'm going to go on the record here. Okay, he's just not that good. He's good he is a good boxer would be a lie to say he's not but the thing with davis is he has what he's good at apart from being really fast and really powerful because both those things are true what he's very very good at is his punch mechanics are pretty incredible and he is very very good at disguising his shots so that his opponents aren't really sure what's coming until very very late and when you combine that with his speed he's a difficult guy to predict and the thing is with that, with all those things together, with his speed and his mechanics and his unpredictability, why are so many of his shots landing on the guard or just whiffing? And the, th- the problem Tank has is that he just relies on those things. He does very little setup work. He isn't making the space. He isn't pushing his opponents of balance. He isn't making any kind of space. He isn't making them give him openings. He isn't fainting. He isn't doing any of that. He's just looking for a big shot and then throwing, looking for an opening. He's waiting for an opening to show itself. He's not even moving in an effort to find, see an opening. He's just waiting for an opponent to show him an opening, and then he's throwing at it. And because he's so fast, and because he's so, his mechanics are so, because they are, his mechanics are good. Apart from when he leaps in from distance, from too far, but that's, you know, that comes together with the setting up. His, his punch mechanics are really, really good, and He's just relying on that far too much. And it's, I mean, it's gonna, if, if he ever gets matched up with an elite opponent, because the PBC thing, the Mayweather thing, I'm not convinced it'll ever happen. But if he ever gets matched up to one of the top opponents in the division, especially at 135, where he's no longer the biggest, I mean, he's, he's short, but he's not, he's no longer gonna have the big heft advantage. He's not gonna have the power advantage against everyone there. He's just gonna get him in trouble because and I mean, this is the other thing that he does. The other problem that he has is that he knows how to defend himself. He knows what defensive maneuvers look like. 
He knows how to protect himself. His, he moves his head well. He moves defensively well. He can jab defensively. But when he's throwing, all of that goes out the window. He's very open to counters. And again, that's going to get him in trouble. And you can compare him to a little bit to Reggie Progre. You can compare Teofimo Lopez to him as well. You can compare those three fighters. They're not completely similar. I mean, but they have similar things about them. And the thing is, they all sort of exist on this. They all have this, this line of readiness between them where you watch Progre fight and he's probably the least hyped out of the three and he hasn't beaten Lomachenko, so that's obviously reason why he's not as hyped as Lopez but everything he does is set up he's insanely aggressive much more than a tank except you know so he'll go, he went on the defensive against some of his high level fighters but he's he's very in your face he likes to come in very very close but everything he does is set up and also he's very good at moving his head defensively and keeping himself covered even when he's being very very aggressive and that was true even in his very early fights, I remember, you know, I'm a, I'm a boxing nerd, I go on boxing forums, and I had a few fight arguments, I won't call them fights, sort of discussions, here and there, and saying, you know, is he going to be ready when he steps up a level to defend? And I was saying, you know, you can see these things, that he's moving his head, he's ready to slip a punch, even if he doesn't have to slip it, because it's not coming back. And you could see that from him, and that doesn't really exist. Like Lopez isn't as ready, I don't want to talk about him too much today i think we might need to do a special podcast just talking about these 135ers to be honest but um yeah tank davis he just doesn't do that you watch him throw punches and his chin is in the air and his head is still and as i alluded to a few minutes ago he sometimes just jumps in from miles away and throws his big swing punches and when he fights someone fast enough he'll be very counterable and even Isaac Cruz, you know, he was diffusing a lot of this just by jabbing and stepping away or just by not coming in. Like Tank would throw a shot in anticipation that Cruz would step into it and he wouldn't because, you know, he's he's not an idiot. Why would you? Like, smaller fighters, other fighters Tank has faced have had to throw themselves at him because they've had no other way to get to him. But now he's at a level where the opponents are throwing jabs well enough that if he can't get past a the jab, they're going to win the fight just by doing that. And he hasn't got the game plan. Like, even against Cruz, there were times when he struggled to get past the jab. He's got a jab of his own, it's fine, he won the fight with it at the end. Because like I say, you know, I don't want to take too much away from him. He's a power puncher who broke his power hand, and he adjusted and won the fight. Like, he's, he's capable, but he's, you know, he's going to struggle. He's going to find that tough if he ever gets matched up like he you see sometimes him getting put in pound for pound discussions you know multi-weight champion he should be in the pound for pound top 10 and it's like no just compare him to really any of the guys not even in that top 10 but in that discussion and i'm sorry but he just hasn't proved that he's it's there he's not proved that he's on that level despite having multiple titles not all of them are that legitimate at multiple weights he just hasn't fought anyone really world level for a very long time. I mean, both Gamboa and Santa Cruz were world class out their day, in their day at smaller weights, but they were both past their best and both fighting up in weight from where they were at the best. And I mean, Tank can say, oh yeah, I'm small. And he isn't, he isn't tall for 135, but he, I mean, he's a tank. That's his nickname. He's 
he's a big, big, powerful, fast guy. Um, I don't, I don't suspect we'll see him. I mean, we might see him at one thirty, but I think one through five is going to be where he's going to settle in. And he's just, he's going to have to improve a few things. And I don't know. It's going to be tough for him because, you know, we think of him as a young guy, but he's 27 now. And that's okay. That is sort of the age where a lot of fighters come into their prime. You know, it's where Canelo really started being like, oh, wow, this fighter is something special. It's, it's you know, it's not the end of the world to not be fully developed at the age of 27. In fact, you wouldn't expect a fighter to be their best best at 27. But he just really hasn't shown any improvement on any of these things. Really, at any point in the, at any time since he beat Liam Walsh to win the title back in the day, it's just not. He's just not that. Uh, not as technical as people want him to be. He's, I'm sorry, he's not. And uh, yeah, that makes it an interesting one three five division because I, I mean, okay, I'll talk about this now. The the one three five division, which just it's just been visited visited by an unexpected guest at the top in George Campos. But we can talk about Teofimo Lopez being, you know, not the guy he thought we thought he was. And we can also argue back and forth about whether he was really at risk of dying during the fight or whether the diagnosis he got occurred during the fight. You know, that's... I'm not a doctor. I can't comment on that. I do think, you know, it is a little suspicious that he... The doctors talking about it are hired doctors and not the doctors who... Who examined him, but okay, I'm I'm not a doctor. Maybe he was injured, maybe he wasn't. The point is there's clearly things going on with Teofimo Lopez, whether he was injured during the fight or not, he'll be back. There's still Vasily Lomachenko, seeming he beats Richard Comey this weekend. He'll he's you know, he'll be he'll be back, he is back, he'll be going for the top level. And if Tank and and um if Tank and Javonta Davis, if Tank Davis and Devin Haney, my apologies, want to get into this, want to compete into this sort of thing, they have issues to fix. They just, I'm sorry, they just do. Like George Cambosos, um, you know, Cambosos and Cruz both showed surprising performances. And it is difficult to contextualise exactly. Without, without seeing more fights from them at world level, it's difficult to say, did... For certain, did Lopez really have that much of an off night, or was Cambosos that much better than we thought? And in truth, they're probably somewhere in the middle. And um, I think the same is probably true of Cruz and Davis. And then obviously Davis won, so it wasn't that that much of a um, of reflection. But you know, so many people expected Davis to just blow through him, and he didn't. And now you have to discuss whether. Cruz is better than people thought, or is Davis worse? And again, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. And in this case, I did say that before the fight, so go me. Um, But when you watch Cambosos, and you see the speed of his hands, and you see the way he uses his length, and you see the chin he's got on him, and you imagine Tank Davis fighting him, like that might be the first guy he fights that hasn't got a distinct speed. He hasn't got a distinct speed advantage over. And in fact, Cambosos, I mean, I wouldn't say he's got faster hands than Davis, but because he's not, because he throws in bunches with setup, with in combination, he's going to be getting the speed home better quite a lot of the time because he isn't just throwing from huge distances. You know, you know, 
So, so yeah. So basically, what my takeaway for the weekend is was two expected performances from fighters who need to improve. I think Haney's got more chance of improving. He's also got more chance of actually fighting the elite fighters. Um, or fighting Ryan Garcia if he ever um, ever graces us with a return. And I, I sound sarcastic there. I like Ryan Garcia. I like him as a fighter, and I like him as a personality. People get really annoyed by his Instagram following, but I find the idea of um, you know grown ass men in our thirties getting irritated because Ryan Garcia has managed to find himself a fandom of and well an income and you know, of, of boxers, of people who aren't traditional boxing fans. You know, people get really annoyed by this and I find that really stupid, but that's, again, a subject for another time. He's a bit of a basic boxer, but what he does have is he's huge for the weight and he punches really fucking hard and he's fast. Um, again, him fighting Tank Davis, uh, to some extent that would be who gets a short home first. Him fighting Devin Haney, you know, he might get completely outfoxed because he's a lot more basic than Haney, but if he does land that, that shot, that big shot, then again, I think Haney lacks the punch resilience. And I, again, I think it's mechanical, but he lacks it. Whatever the reason he lacks the punch resilience, I think that Garcia would have a good chance of putting him to sleep. In any case, it's becoming a very interesting division, and I've rambled on about it for quite a while now. So I think I'll have to wrap it up a little bit, just to mention that next weekend we get yet more in this division because um, the erstwhile king, now the um, seeking to reprove himself, I wouldn't call him a contender, he's a legend, he's Vasily Lomachenko, possibly the most skilled boxer on the planet today, but, you know, people would argue with that, people would say Canelo and Usyk and he can't argue with them, but, um, but clearly Vasily Lomachenko is a delight to watch and I think no one would argue that on a technical level he's clearly the most skilled in this division but he has to prove that he's not past it at this weekend you know Comey's a tough fighter he has to prove that he's not past his best he has to prove that his mentality is still there and well that'll be interesting too I'm not going to do a full breakdown of it now I'm going to try to do a piece on another another very busy weekend I mean as boxing fans this has been a, this these last few weeks and the next couple of weeks it's been a great time it's just been card after card after card and i think we've got four or five solid boxing cards next weekend um several world titles multiple world titles have been defended it's um yeah i'll try to get a preview out for you guys um some of you may have been reading these i've been getting them out pretty consistently since uh since i moved and got internet in summer so um hopefully you've been enjoying those hopefully this podcast again um, this is this the third one I've recorded the second one that's technically come out but probably the first one some of you will be hearing um, I hope you've enjoyed this I got very rambly at the end I got very rambly in the middle um, I hope you've enjoyed this I hope you you, you come back um, and yeah um, the fight site might, you can find my writing there you can find all of my very knowledgeable, very very knowledgeable colleagues talking about all sorts of fight sports on the podcast network that we have. Check that out, and um, thanks for listening.